Hey, how are you? Hey, I am doing great. Yeah, how are you? I am doing okay. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago in our one of our Psalms conversations about, I think it was when we talked about Psalm 18, about putting our phones aside in conversations. Do you remember this? We talked about how your kids and their friends put their phones aside and whoever picks it up has to pay when they're at a yeah, restaurant or yeah. whatever. So For sure. I have been doing this in my time with God, reading the Psalms. I set a timer so that I know when I have to move on to my next thing, but then I put my phone all the way across the room and mm. it has unsurprisingly made my time with God absolutely awesome. And so I have been loving being in the Psalms, following along with our Summer in the Psalms schedule. It's just been really, really good. That's great. You know, that conversation impacted me as well, because I've realized we talked about how we have these little micro moments throughout the day where we think we're not doing anything. And so we feel free to just open up our phone and scroll through and check all of our notifications and do all these things as if that was time otherwise not used well. Well, I've started to ask myself pretty much every time I grab my phone, is this a moment I want to invite all of these messages into my life? That's actually a question that goes through my head, and I think it's a really mm. helpful one. Man, well, we are getting a lot out of these conversations. Uh, I, I hope some of the other folks who are joining us going through the Psalms are getting it through, getting as much out of it as we are. And uh, if you are just jumping in, we will be posting about what Psalms we're reading, both in the liner notes and on social media. We're just taking this entire summer to go through the Psalms and share thoughts throughout the episode, just because we are convinced that the Psalms offer us something really powerful in our relationship with God, and we would love to have you join us as we journey through them. Oh, man. I actually can't wait to get to our thoughts segment later in the episode, because I felt it this week. I felt how the Psalms enriched my life, and I'm really looking forward to sharing about it. So, mm, Yeah, I also actually am really looking forward to our thoughts section, because I had some really interesting thoughts on the Psalms as well. But I got to, before we get to any of that, our main topic today, I assume, is about the lyrics of this song that you <laughs> texted me. Uh, I did. And so please tell me what's going on here. Okay. So yes, before the episode, I made you listen to one of the most horrendous songs I have ever heard. And I was in a coffee shop last week and it was actually before church. So my son does like the tech uh, ministry at the church. He helps out with the tech booth. And so he has to get there super early in the morning, like a couple hours before the rest of us actually attend church. So I drive him half an hour into town and get him to church really early. And then I go sit at a coffee shop for a couple hours and read and pray and all that stuff. And it's wonderful until you hear some inane song on the radio. And so I had to hear it. So now you had to hear it. And now we have to make it into an episode. <laughs> uh, so the, the song is I'm Worth It by Fifth Harmony. 
I guess it's got a special appearance by Kid Ink. I don't know who Fifth Harmony is. I don't know who Kid Ink is. If that dates me in some way, I think I can live. Um, <laughs> this song was awful. And I think that was your reaction as well when you heard it. This is a, a woman who is being told, you know, show me you're worth it by dancing presumably seductively and all of these things. And she's like, oh yeah, I'm worth it. Take a chance on me. I'm worth it kind of thing. And so she's complying with this audacious request for her to dance seductively to prove that she's worth it. And for some reason she buys it and thinks that this is how she proves that she's worth it. Is that what you got out of the song? That is at least one of the horrible things that I got out of the song. Yes. Why? Any woman would not be profoundly offended by this song as if it is a man's right to tell her to dance and jump and act like a puppet in order to prove her value and worth. I I just, please be offended, ladies. But um, other than that, I'm super curious what it was, because there are a lot of horrible pop songs out there. It's not like oh, absolutely. Oh man, most pop songs are great. <laughs> <laughs> Though I'll be honest, I often have these really profound God moments with pop songs because often I hear them and I'm not expecting to have a God moment. So I will have this like song that is clearly not about Jesus and somehow I will connect it with my relationship with Jesus and it's great I don't think that was the case for either of us in this situation. Um, No. And so I'm just, I'm curious, something must have resonated negatively with you in this song. Yeah, it really did. And it's hard to pick what is so negative about all of this. But here's why I wanted to bring it up and why I wanted you to just, you know, donate three minutes of your life that you'll never get back to hearing this song. Three minutes and um, 41 seconds, friend. Okay. <laughs> Don't think that the 41 seconds was willingly given because it was not. You could have trimmed off that 41 seconds. It's just repeating what has already happened. I'll but. be honest. I, I actually did. I probably listened to two minutes of it. And, and then I was like, no. <laughs> uh, but a- anyway. Right. Yeah. So here's my thing. This brings up the topic of worth and value. This guy, this disgusting guy, thought that this girl had to prove her value by dancing for him. She felt like she needed to comply in order to prove her worth and her value. And I think that we as Christians have a better story to tell, but I don't think we tell it very well. And I don't think we tell it very compellingly. You know, as inane and as stupid as that song was, the lyric video alone has 60 million views on YouTube. People are listening to this. People are soaking it up. So I want to know, what is the better message that we have about a person's worth and value? How do we tell a better story about that? And then what are the implications for the church And for how we relate to one another within the body of Christ, what are the implications for evangelism 
and how we invite people to participate in this body of Christ, I think we have a better story to tell about worth and value, and I want to know what it is. That's good. I think, unfortunately, if we are suggesting we have a better story, a more compelling story, I think we have to start with the 60 million views. Let's acknowledge for a moment that this is telling a compelling story, Mm. right? Whether we like it or not, this is clearly compelling. Both of us are going to be lyrics listeners. Many, many years ago, I discovered that one of my very close high school friends was a music listener. When I asked him something about the lyrics of a song, he's like, I have no idea what the lyrics are. I was just listening for the music. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Um, <laughs> and so I, I, in that moment, discovered that there are lyrics listeners and music listeners. And those of you who are listening online right now, I would be super curious which camp you find yourself falling into. But whether through the music or through the lyrics or through both, there is a compelling story that is being told here. And if we are going to say our story is more compelling, we have to ask what is compelling about this one. So Mm. what's compelling about this story? Well, it's got an easy plot to follow. And what I mean by that is not just the simplicity of the lyrics and the absolute idiocy that it took to write this. What I'm saying is, in our society, this is a very, very easy story to follow. If you are sexy and if you perform in all of the ways that the society says you should perform, you are ascribed worth. So do X, you will get Y. It's not a hard math problem. It might be hard to accomplish. It might be asking more than an individual can actually do. But the story itself, the expectation itself, is simple and easy to follow. Mm. And profoundly touches on a desperate longing that our culture has. You know, there's a reason this song didn't say, baby, you're super smart, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, baby, you're a well-informed voter. It was just not (laughs) something that made its way into this. And that's because if I read our culture correctly, and if I look at my own heart and get a little honest here, we are a culture of people who are profoundly insecure and hiding it behind a veneer of confidence. Mm. And I, I think that is profoundly appealing. This song hides all the nonsense under the cover of being able to walk down the street and hum to yourself, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. And I think that there is a desperate craving for that reminder or that message. There is. And I have not met somebody who feels their own worth, feels their own security, and also walks down the street saying the words, I'm worth it. It's not a refrain that they have to use. If you have to say you're worth it, you are trying to speak 
the words into truth. You're trying to speak against something you feel is unworthy in yourself. Mm -hmm. And this song is a blatant violation of somebody's insecurity. I know that you don't feel worthy in and of of yourself. So let me exploit that for my own aim and tell you, you need to dance seductively for me. And because of their own insecurity, they do it. And it's actually a violation or an exploitation on another level. The song writer slash artist slash producer people are putting this out there to make money off of people's desperate desire to tell themselves they're worth it. But their ability on the flip side to be able to connect with a willingness to do whatever it takes to prove it. Because somehow this song manages to connect with both. Mm. And that is incredible. I'll do whatever it takes to prove I'm worth it. But don't you tell me I'm not worth it because I'm totally worth it. Even while I'm acting like a fool to prove that I'm worth it. Mm. I mean, whoever wrote this song is making a great statement about what is going on in our culture, but is doing it to make a hit single that is ultimately just making them money. I think you really hit on something there, and I would love to explore it further, at least from a positive side. I think what you said, if I am rephrasing you correctly, is that not only is somebody feeling insecure, but they don't dare allow anybody to tell them that they're not secure or that they're not worth it. And so by affirming worth and giving them a path to prove it, they're hitting both sides of the coin. Is that what I'm hearing? Mm, I think that is a big chunk of it. I think absolutely. There is a defensiveness that if you're going to deal with this issue with folks, you know, even pastorally, when I talk with people, there is a defensiveness that often needs to come down before any real work can get done. And this song short circuits that work to take the defensiveness down by giving the easy story you referenced towards the beginning of our conversation. Well, and I would love to know then, how do we, from a discipleship perspective, pastorally communicate the gospel and a person's worth in a way that is both biblical and sensitive to that tendency in our society, to both long to be affirmed and never to be told they're unworthy. And there was a there was a time when it was believed that the beginning point of sharing the gospel is for somebody to acknowledge that they're a sinner. And I don't disagree that that acknowledgement needs to happen. But in light of the insecurity that we have in our society and this defensiveness around worthiness, is that where the wise should start. Man, this is interesting because this is a, initially you mentioned discipleship, and now this is more of an evangelism question. How do you connect with a lost person who doesn't know Jesus yet, as opposed to how do you connect on this level with a person who is already following Jesus and still struggling with these issues? And, And I think the answer is different. But boy, when I think about this from the perspective of, and I hope you have an answer, like I'm spitballing because you answered the, asked the question first, but I would love to hear your answer when I'm done. When I think about truly lost people that I know, it is not the content that has to change. I think the good news is 
not just that you're a sinner, but that I can help you feel safe to admit it. Mm. And I think that is really good news. But it is not good news that, again, you know, you talked about what we experienced as kids in our sort of evangelical movement. And to be honest, I don't know if it's the evangelical movement as it was or the evangelical movement as I experienced it as a very simple 10-year-old. So I don't want to throw the movement under the bus. But telling somebody you're a sinner is not what I think we need to do. What I think we need to do is develop enough relationship with people where they feel safe to explore their own sinfulness. I can't bash the defensiveness down from the outside, but I can certainly create a safe space where they can begin to disassemble their defensiveness from within. Yeah, I love that vision. I think it's absolutely the vision we need to be shooting for. The problem that I see, though, is that a lot of people don't feel safe in church to explore their own sinfulness. In fact, I've heard from many people that feel like church is the most judgy place they can be. I mean, I think there's a reason why Dana Carvey's church lady on SNL struck a chord so many years ago. It's a caricature of an old lady you know, wagging her finger at every little thing that somebody does in the church. And so I I do want to pause and say the first danger here is to treat the church like it's one consistent thing. And any church you go into, even any evangelical church, even any Baptist or Assemblies of God church, will respond the same way. I think... Most churches, now there are some just rotten churches out there, let's just be honest. They're just rotten and that's life. But most churches that I have gone into are wrestling hard with how to be the open and welcoming place that is honoring of the Spirit of Jesus while still valuing the holiness of of the Father that required the death of Jesus. I I think they're trying to live in that spot, which is not to say that your question is a bad question, because I think you're asking, okay, we as the church, we want to be a place where this conversation can be had, but we have not done awesome at it. How do we do this? Yeah, you're exactly right. And I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush and say every church responds this way. Nor do I want to paint with too broad of a brush and say no church does. I have no idea what the percentages in each camp are, and I don't care to guess. But Mm. um, yes, for those that take this balance seriously, to be faithful to the gospel while— and that's not even a balance. I think to be faithful to the gospel, you are also welcoming of people. Uh, I just think that the two naturally flow together. But how do you create a space— of safety? And how do you allow somebody to feel their worth, not just be told that they're worthy, not just say, well, the Bible says that you're worthy, but to feel it such that words aren't even necessary. You know, I have a really good relationship with my kids. I don't think that they need to be told that in my eyes, they are worthy. 
they feel that. That's their everyday reality. How do we make that an everyday reality in the church? And on what is it based? Yeah, man, that's so good. I think that one part of the answer to this has to be the church actively being committed to its people developing relationships across maturity lines. Here's what I mean by that. If you walk into the church and you're insecure, if you're walking into the church and unsure of your worth and value, I don't know that a sermon series is going to help you connect with your worth and value that the Bible suggests you have, no matter how many sermons it is. It's going to make you think some thoughts, but deep down in your soul, I'm not sure you're going to feel any differently. Mm. However, if somebody who is a step ahead of you, two steps ahead of you in the spiritual journey, sees you at church a couple of times, looks you in the eye and gets to know you kind of at a natural pace, but that leads up to, hey, let's get together. Let's have coffee or grab lunch or whatever is natural. And that relationship is an authentic relationship. I think that goes a long way to healing our lack of self-worth and value. Yes, I completely agree. When you walk into a room and somebody's head turns and they have that look of recognition and joy and walk over to you and have conversation, invite you to the next thing, whatever that is, that communicates worth and value far more than dancing a hundred sermons, dude. Yeah. And, or yeah. Or a or, or hundred sermons. Know. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, I mean, and the why on this, I think is both fascinating and potentially obvious, but I was talking with one of the guys at my church who actually has done this for me. He's a step ahead of me and was one of the first people to reach out to me and has been a huge part of my spiritual journey since we moved here and really beneficially so, and I'm deeply grateful for him. And he was saying, as we were talking about a particular group of people in a particular ministry, and he listed them all off, he basically said, this person needs somebody in the church to reparent them. This person in the church needs somebody to reparent them. This person needs to be reparented. This person needs to be reparented. Every person in this particular ministry team needed somebody to be their dad because their dad experience was so bad that they needed somebody to step into that space for them. And I think that is a lot of why this is such a desperately needed thing in our culture and a thing that the church can offer. Yeah. You know, I don't know everything you meant by the word dad, but I am conflating the two ideas that you have proposed, which is, you know, somebody more mature, somebody further along, and this idea of a fatherly figure. And I'm kind of conflating them into something that is, I might describe this way, somebody who is has some solidity, some wisdom, some groundedness, some something they are already established and firm 
and you can grasp onto them and feel secure as a result because they're grounded. And when you are with them, you are grounded and they can teach you how to be grounded, sure, steady. And then as you aspire to be more and more like them, you find that you actually can stand on your own two feet occasionally and do some of the things that they do. And you kind of watch how they go about their life and the next level that they attain. And you want to go, I want to attain that too. And more and more, their solidity is birthed in you. And that that's value. That's, I find a lot of self-worth coming out of, hey, I can do this. And I watched them. I was supported by them. And they guided me. And I, here I am. I can do this. Mm. Yeah, grounded is great, especially if we think of it being, what does it mean to be grounded in God? I'll be honest. I don't always see tons of people who are deeply grounded in God around me. I think that that is a process or a result that cannot be rushed. And I think Mm. it takes a lifetime to get there. And maybe it takes generations to get there. And so I guess my longing here is for people who are in that space to reach out and love people that are not in that space yet. Hmm. You know, you talk about this being a lifetime long thing, or maybe even an intergenerational thing. And the length of time it takes to be so grounded in God. And that, in terms of speed, is never going to hold a candle to that song. Our song says, all you have to do is be sexy enough and stand here and dance and bam, instant worth. And what you're proposing, and I think you're right, by the way, is slower, longer, more deliberate, less of a clear path, if you will, but no less compelling. In fact, I would argue more compelling. And if we want to go song for song here, I want to recommend Andrew Peterson's song, God of Our Fathers. And in this song, he kind of looks out over the ancestry of fathers that have been building their life on God and that heritage that is coming down to him. And as he talks about God being their guide, he then prays that God would similarly be his guide. And then the last part of the song, he's praying for his own children that God would be their God, that he would guide them in the same way that he's been the God of their fathers. And that line of succession, that generations of faithfulness, that communicates not only value, but belonging and connection and history and place and identity that we're all searching for underneath all of that insecurity. Mm. And, you know, one of the simple messages of that song is I was just scanning the lyrics I don't know that I've ever heard it before, but I was scanning the lyrics as you were talking about it. Restoration of family and we as followers of Jesus choosing to be a part of the multi-generational work of building family is, I think, part of the gospel and part of the way we do evangelism. Hmm. 
not in order to get 263 people saved today, but in order to be the kingdom of God that shines a light to the rest of the world by demonstrating what the way of God is really like. I mean, what better evangelism can I do for a broken world than to build some healthy kids and release them out into the world? Hmm. Kids that are solid. And I guess I've used this word solid so many times, I should probably define what I mean. I've read so much fiction lately, including Andrew Peterson's uh, The Wing Feather Saga, and I'm just finishing the Lord of the Rings series. And in both of these, and it's a common idea in many fiction books, that once the evil character dies, they evaporate like mist. They crumble to dust. They are shown to be as hollow, as empty, as illusory as they were evil, and that that evil had consumed them and made them into absolute nothingness. Whereas solid, righteous, whole, these kind of things all go together. And somebody that is well-established in God, I mean, Psalm 1 talks about it being like a tree planted by the streams of water, and and its leaf does not wither. It's just this solid tree. There's a solidity to it that, I mean, if, if we are raising children like that, if we are bringing people into the body of Christ and training them and solidifying them, boy, isn't that a worthy invitation to say to the world, come, lay aside the the ashes, the dust, the vapor that is the hollowness of the world and come find solidity. I think that that's a powerful invitation. Somehow it reminds me of Pinocchio the invitation to be the real boy, right? Hmm. I think you're spot on. I, I, I do think, to be honest, that this is still a narrow road and that the broad highway that leads to destruction is well typified by the song. And because it is such a quick fix, it is an easier sell. And I think... The long, slow message of the gospel is a much more complicated cell and therefore is always going to be a narrow road. I think that's true, but I still want to tell this story. I want to make sure this story is out there. I want to make sure that people know there's another option. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, not to be too hokey with the song, they're worth it. They're just pursuing worth in the wrong direction. So come this way. Yeah. And life in this way is really good, right? Like, I like the road I'm on so much. I do too. And I'll tell you what, it is made better, richer, more desirable because we do it together. And I was I, hoping you were going to end that with by talking to me. Um, <laughs> well, and look, to be honest, that's true. And we've said it <laughs> we've said it to one another for years, right? This is why we've been talking on the phone every week for 20 plus years because 
we do find value in this. And it's why we decided to do this podcast and invite other people to join the conversation as well. This Christian life that we do, this path towards solidity is better together. It really, really is. So come one, come all to anything you're doing in the kingdom of God. This just happens to be one of them. And we would love if you would join the conversation. Uh, You can do it on Facebook, on Instagram. Just look for On the Phone with Josh. Share with us your thoughts on worthiness and where you're at with that, where you think society's at with that, where you think the church is at with that. How do we tell a compelling story about human value and worth as it's found in the gospel? That's so good. And you know, the other thing, you mentioned that Andrew Peterson song, I would love to hear other songs that people find to be sort of the opposing song to the one we talked about today. What's the opposite song that offers a different way, another alternative? Because there are a lot of great Mm. songs out there that in poetry and lyric and music, artists are offering another way. And... I am not always the person who listens to tons of music, so I would love to get to hear some of those songs. Mm, Me too. Me too. And if you haven't yet, check out that God of My Father song by Andrew Peterson. I just love it. It's so, so good. Um, All right. With that, we're finally at our Summer in the Psalms reflection thoughts. What do we call this? This is our thoughts segment that we're dedicating to our Summer in the Psalms series. There we go. And Josh from Missouri, I want to hear all about it. All right. Well, the psalm that I'm thinking of that I wanted to talk about was uh, Psalm 62. It's the first couple of verses. And in part inspired by you, I have been reading these primarily in ESV, but I am often going over to the message I love getting to read the message because it's like getting to sit there and read the Bible with Eugene Peterson, and what could I ask for to be a more delightful experience than that? And these particular verses in Psalm 62 struck me because I got profoundly different things out of them in each translation. So Psalm 62, 1 and 2 in the ESV says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And when I read that, I, first of all, think that that is just beautiful. Second of all, to wait for God with my soul itself in silence speaks of an inner harmony that allows me to be, uh, as we have often talked about in this podcast, a settled person, right? Mm. It's not just my mind. It's not just my heart. My very soul is able to enter into silence as I wait for God, which means circumstances are not what I want them to be. There is something that I need or want, and yet in the midst of my needing and wanting, I am still able to be silent in my soul. And I love that imagery. In Mm. 
the message, Peterson translates it this way. God, the one and only, I'll wait for as long as he says. Everything I need comes from him, so why not? He's solid rock under my feet, breathing room for my soul, an impregnable castle. I'm set for life. And in that one, I cannot get past the image of my soul being given breathing room for God. Yeah. Or, excuse me, my soul being given breathing room by God. So often, I feel like that's what my soul needs. My soul in this busy, cramped world needs breathing room, and it is in an encounter with God and in a life lived in the presence of God that I get breathing room for my soul. That just awakened such a longing in me when I heard it. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so oddly enough, my thought also comes, well, my thought comes from a couple of different Psalms, but the first part of it comes from Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. So I feel (laughs) like in order to respond to yours, I need to tell mine. Okay, go for it. So before I do, I got to tell you the story of like how I went about reading this. So we were at the beach this weekend, and I have shared in a previous episode that just outside from our beach house, there is a long, long, long stretch of ocean and beach. And when you look out to the south there, there is a huge, huge rock that is probably seven, eight stories tall and just as mm-hmm. wide and huge, just sitting just off the shore. And I have often viewed that solidity is the word of the day, by the way. Um, I've, I've seen that as a, a solid image of God. Just the fact that that rock has stood for generations upon generations, every single person that has walked on this continent and been at that seashore has seen that rock. I have been at that seashore and I can picture that rock. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't miss it. I have to tell you, when I read this passage, I actually picture that rock. That is crazy. Because it's such a perfect illustration. It really is. And so... I was out walking the dogs because every morning when we're down there, we have to walk the dogs and run on the beach. And so I was out walking the dogs and then one dog is obsessed with his ball, her ball. And she went sniffing in the soft sand uh, around driftwood and different things. And so she went sniffing around and left her ball at some unknown location. And you can't, it's like uh, leaving home without a binky when you've got a two-year-old. It's just not going to work. You got to like go find the darn ball. So I'm huffing it through all this soft sand, which I don't love walking in. It's just really arduous and it just wears me out. And I finally like had to walk a backtrack quite a bit to get this darn ball and then walk all the way back through the soft sand anyway, because I was kind of veering toward getting off the beach anyway. So I never felt like I needed to go back to the seashore and up and anyway, doesn't matter. I walked through a lot of soft sand. So I had those experiences and then I sat down and read. And as you already read Psalm 62, one and two, for God alone is my, my soul waits in silence from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. 
But then I didn't just read Psalm 62, I read Psalm 63, which begins this way. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As I was trudging through this soft sand, I had been thinking about, man, what would it be like to be in the middle of the desert where it's all just soft sand and there's no water around? And how much worse would it be to like walk through all of that? I had like literally had that thought and then came back to the house and sat down and read these two Psalms. And the contrast of like being out on dry, weary land without water and thirsting for God and the the solidity of God and, and the salvation of God that is just so sure as pictured in that rock. It was a really cool moment to read these Psalms. That's awesome. What an amazing way of connecting the world and the word. The beauty of creation. Just I think this is where there's this harmony between what we read and what we experience that just is mutually reinforcing. That's so good. Yeah, it is. And then it it continued on. We don't have time to get into it, but I went on a personal retreat yesterday and uh, just a way of honoring the end of seminary and just kind of praying my way through the day. And when I went on my personal retreat, like I read Psalms that again correlated with my environment and my experiences, and it was just so fun. Oh, that's so good. I am dying to hear about your personal retreat. So I hope you have lots of thoughts about that because I would love to make our whole next conversation all about that because we've been wanting to have a conversation about personal retreats and we decided we were going to wait till you went on yours and now you have and I am dying to hear how it went. Yeah, I do have some thoughts with how it went. I think I'm trying to decide internally how much of that is just between me and God and how much of that is ready for the podcast. Um, really, really good stuff, stuff I'm happy about, excited about. Uh, so I'll share some of that, but I would love to really explore, like, what's the purpose of a retreat? How do you plan one? I had some issues in planning mine that I'd love to talk about. And just like, because you've been on a ton of retreats too. And honestly, I learned a lot from you about how to plan and orchestrate a retreat. So I would love to just kind of talk about the whole concept, not just my one experience. Yeah, I think that's great. I can't wait. That's going to be a great conversation. Yes. All right. Well, that brings us to the Witch Josh question. Witch Josh. You really are watching baseball. That was a very like, you know, baseball-esque. That uh, was baseball-y. Yeah. Um, All right. I was trying to come up with some creative transition. I had nothing. (laughs) <laughs> okay. And in other news, uh, so, um, yeah, so this week's question, which Josh has seen the Mona Lisa in person? Oh, and this is me briefly, very, very briefly. I would have assumed like, if you got a chance to go to see the Mona Lisa, you would, you'd use your allotted time. You would think so here's story time yes so the mona lisa is in the louvre the largest art museum in i believe the largest art museum in france uh we were blessed with a trip to france some number of years ago my kids were quite a bit smaller it was in the middle of summer and parisian architecture 
is very old, like very, there's a lot of old, old, old stuff. Even the new stuff is really old. (laughs) And this was the hottest summer on record in Paris. Oh, man. It was so hot that the plumbing in the Louvre broke. (laughs) Okay. And so I toured the Louvre constantly trying to help my son and daughter find a bathroom, all of which were broken. And so we ran through the entire building looking for a working bathroom, Uh. going by some of the most famous works of art, painting, sculpture, you name it, it's there. And by the time we successfully found a bathroom, we had literally wandered through the entire building, had made our way all the way back to the main lobby where the entrance and exit was, and my kids were done. And so I spent two hours in the most famous art museum in the world, looking at some of the most beautiful things that have ever been made by mankind, while following my kids from failed bathroom to failed bathroom until they gave up on the whole thing and we had to go home because they were just tanked. Oh my gosh. I think every parent has like a a story like that with their young kids Mm -hmm. and it's just maddening, man. And the Louvre is probably doubly so because like, when are you going to go back? Yeah, no kidding. Yes, that's correct. And I am, in case it has not come across, a huge art fan. (laughs) I'm not like, oh, there's a lot of things to do and we just happen to be at the Louvre. Like, I love art. Like, adore art. I am sitting next to multiple art books as we speak. I love art. I mean, the Mona Lisa itself is difficult to see anyway because the crowds are so gigantic and this whole museum i mean the crowds were massive like it was insane on top of all of this so it was yes someday i want to go back to the louvre just with my wife and actually enjoy the mona lisa the nike statue all the things and i look forward to that it's going to be wonderful But yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Probably that is not what's going to happen next week. But you know what is going to happen next week? We are going to have another amazing conversation. I can't wait. All right. I'll talk to you then. I can't wait. See you then. Or maybe not. But I'll talk to you then. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.